let's turn to the book of Acts. We are in Acts chapter 9. We're going to finish up this chapter today. We're looking at Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 32 and going all the way up to verse 43. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, He came down also to the saints who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping, showing Showing, and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And, she, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. <coughs> And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Thus ends our reading of God's life-giving word. May all who hear it find that one day they too will hear Jesus say, Arise. The, The first dead body that I had ever seen was the body of my great-grandfather. I I was just a young boy when he died, but my parents had decided that I was old enough to go to the funeral, and so they brought me along with them. And and while I was there, I I had the opportunity to walk up to the the open open casket and look. There he was almost exactly as I remembered him, only he was a bit paler and his skin seemed a bit tighter. I'm sure the embalmers did the best they could to preserve him, but, but, but they, they could not capture that, that spark of life that is in everyone who is still breathing, you know? I mean, great-grandpa Melvin, he was, he was there, but... He, he wasn't there. I'm now much older and I have seen plenty of dead bodies since. Some have been more painful than others. And yet each and every time that I, that I go to that casket, it becomes more and more obvious that there is something missing. That, that there is something that has been taken away. Why do we do this? 
Why do we bring out the dead and, and put them on display for all to see? Is it so that we can say our last goodbye? Is it to help us accept the reality that our loved ones are truly gone? Does this visual presence of death help us in our mourning? I think in many ways we could answer yes to all of those questions. And yet there is one other thing that, the, that this display of a, of a dead body does for us. A thing that is of greater value than all of those. You see, when we view the dead, it is a reminder to us that the curse has not yet been fully lifted. And that because of our sins, we, we have earned such a fate. And that this, there is this vicious and powerful enemy known as death who will ultimately come for us. It is in our scripture for today where we will see this fierce enemy coming up against the kingdom of God and putting forth an all-out assault. And we will see what happens when death goes up against the strong name of Jesus. But before we jump in, let's, let's first remind ourselves of where we've been. If you recall, we had, we had just seen the, the conversion of Saul, also known as Paul, right? How, how, how Jesus went up against that, that most zealous persecutor of the church at that time and was able to win him over to himself. He had lifted the, the scales from Saul's eyes and had shown to this man the error of his ways. And it was in that moment that Saul turned to Jesus in repentant faith. And then last week we saw the, the results of that conversion, did we not? As Saul began his new life in Christ. And if you remember, it was this transformation that he went through that was so dramatic. I mean, Saul had changed almost everything about his life. He, he was now part of a new family as the church welcomed him as a brother. He, he also preached a new message as he now proclaimed the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And thus he also had a new mission, a mission to bring that message to as many souls as possible. But with this new mission also came new enemies. And so Saul had to embrace the reality that wherever he would go from now on, persecution would follow. And yet being a former persecutor himself, he also needed to make amends for with those whom he had hurt in the past. And this is what he did when he returned to Jerusalem. And yet what, what this all boiled down to was that, that this new life that he had in Christ was, was a life where he would have to, have to take up his own cross and follow Jesus wherever Christ would lead him. And for the time being, that meant going back to Tarsus, uh, the place of his birth. And then lastly, if you, if you remember, we finished off last week by looking at, at this verse in Acts chapter 9. Look at, look at verse 31. It says this. So the church throughout all Judea and, and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. 
And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. And so a time of peace had come once again to the church. If you recall, they, they had a time of peace at the beginning. Yet, after the stoning of Stephen, the, the, the Jewish authorities had ramped up the violence, right? They were coming down hard upon those who called on the name of Christ. Many were arrested. Many were thrown in prisons. Others were killed just as Stephen was. And that's why we saw the church scatter, right? Those who were living within Jerusalem now traveled into the regions of Judea and Samaria and Galilee. And yet even there, they were not safe because, because there were zealous men who were willing to pursue them, right? As I mentioned earlier, probably the biggest pusher of this violence was this Saul from Tarsus. And yet now that Saul had been converted, now, now that he had given his life to Jesus Christ, or rather Christ took his life and made it his own, much of the pressure that had been placed on the church had now been released. And so for a time, the Christians were living in a little, little bit less fear than they had in the past. Less fear of being imprisoned. Less fear of being killed. And yet those who called upon the name of Jesus, in this freedom, they were able to roam about more freely. And so it is in this time of peace that sets up our story for today. And this is what we'll see as we, as we look, at the, look back at the life of Peter now, as he was able to go from city to city in order to help out some of these young churches that, that had recently formed because of the persecution, right? And yet what Peter would discover when he arrived is that even though pressures from the one enemy had relented, there was a different enemy who was on the prowl, an older enemy, an enemy known to us as death. Would the, would the kingdom of Christ be able to withstand such a powerful foe? Sure, Jesus was able to defeat death for himself, but would he be able to do the same thing for his followers? That's the question we must ask. Let's, let's find out the answer. Look, at, look once again at our text. Look at verses 32 and 33. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. Now, like I said before, after the, after the stoning of Stephen, you know, many of these Christians, they were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And yet, wherever they would go, they would bring the gospel with them, right? And so it didn't take long before there were these small churches, these small congregations in many of these villages and cities. And this is why Peter was going from place to place, places like Lydda. He went to these places to preach the word, to build up these churches, to give them direction and to bring a gospel witness to others. Now, what do we know about this Lydda? 
Well, we know it was a city located in Judea. Um, it was kind of the, a, a waypoint on the road from Jerusalem to, to Joppa. If you look at the, the map, if you pull up that next slide, there you go. You see, uh, if you traveled at a straight shot from Jerusalem to Joppa, you, you couldn't help but walk through Lydda. And so this was a, a Judean city, which meant it was filled with Jews, right? And yet the, the, the Christian mes- message had, had come to this region, and, and now there was this group of believers that had formed this, this small church. And Peter had come to them to, to teach them and to give them guidance. And yet while he was there, he, he, he met this fellow believer who, who needed his help, a man named Aeneas. Now, now, we don't know much about this man, only that he was paralyzed and he had been bedridden for eight years. Now, now how does a man get this way? Well, there's a few different paths, right? One, he could have had a stroke that, that could have paralyzed him. Two, he, he could have taken a great fall, right? He could have broken his back somehow. Whatever the case what we do know is that this man was damaged. He, he was broken. Which begs the question, why do these things happen? Why do we get hurt? Why do our bodies break down? Why, why do we suffer pain and sickness and disease? And in particular, why, why was Aeneas paralyzed? Had he committed some horrific sin that would have caused him to be cursed like this? That's not what's going on here. I mean, yes, Aeneas was a sinner. Don't get me wrong. But but what confined him to his bed had more to do with the sin of mankind in general than any specific sin of his own. You see, when when Adam and Eve sinned, it, it, it introduced death into our world. And with death also comes decay and brokenness. That's why we have diseases. It's why we, have, we can get injured. It's, it's why people are born blind or, or born without limbs. These things are a result of the fall. And they are harbingers, if you will, of our future. Heralds of, of what is to come, namely death. Listen, every time you get a fever, every time you break a bone, every time you sprain your ankle or every time you get a cold, these things are speaking to you. They, they are telling you that you are not indestructible, that, that you are not invincible, that your body has an expiration date, and that sooner or later there will come a day when, when your body will give out and you will have to pay the piper. There is no one who escapes death. And these hurts and these aches that we go through, they are reminding you of this fact. And for this Aeneas, he was reminded of this every day. Every day for the last eight years. For he had been paralyzed and and was now bedridden. He, he had to face that omen of death 
on a consistent basis for it had captured him. It had imprisoned him to that bed. And yet as powerful as death is, Aeneas crossed path with someone who had a greater power. Look at, look at verse 34. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. You see, in, in just a few short words, we see the doors to this prison that he had been trapped in fly wide open. Aeneas had been healed completely. He could now rise up and walk. Now, how could this be? Who has the power to break such a curse? I mean, the answer comes in Peter's words, do they not? Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Yes, you, you who are broken. You who are paralyzed, you who are bound to this bed, Jesus Christ heals you. You see, Peter had invoked the name of the only one who can truly bring freedom to this man. He spoke the name of Jesus, this one who has true authority over all things. And let's be honest. Jesus is really the only name that Peter could have used to see such success. And that's because it is only Jesus who is enthroned in heaven. It is only Jesus who has been given the kingdom. And it is only Jesus who has any authority to do what is needed. Look at, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 25 through 27. Listen to Paul's words concerning Jesus. For he must reign until he, is, he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. I mean, this is why Peter said, Jesus Christ heals you. For he is the one who has such authority. But what else do we see Peter saying to this man? He then commanded him to rise. To get up. To, to do something that should be impossible for him to do. To do something that he, he never dreamed he would ever do again. To do something that can only be done if there is divine intervention. Peter commanded this man to rise. And that's exactly what he did. Jesus had now given this Aeneas the strength that he needed to do this impossible task. But not just rise, for then what did Peter also tell him to do? To make his bed, right? In the Greek, what Peter actually said is, stroison seauto. Make the bed for yourself. 
In other words, Aeneas, you are no longer helpless. You, you no longer need to rely upon others in order to care for you. For Christ has freed you from this bed, from this mattress that has been your prison for the past eight years. Your chains have been lifted and you are free. This is a complete healing. So we see that, that, that it, is, it is Jesus who heals. It is Jesus who strengthens. And it is Jesus who sets the captives free. And I hope you noticed as well the immediacy of all this. I mean, this man was instantly capable of standing on his own. And that's because the, the healing power of Jesus Christ, it has no limits. He is able to take the very thing that's, that's supposed to show us our inevitable course towards bodily decay, and, and he is able to reverse it with a snap of a finger. But that's what the kingdom of God is, is it not? It is a kingdom where the curse is reversed. And when this kingdom broke into Aeneas' life, he experienced a reversal like no other. And yet it did more than just affect him. Did it not? Look at, look at verse 35. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. You see, the, the people of, of his hometown, they, they saw this man walking again, and they had no choice but to believe. For, for they all knew who this man was, how, how debilitated he had been, and yet they couldn't deny the healing power of Jesus Christ. And so they turned to him in faith and found themselves welcomed into the kingdom. But that's what the power of Jesus' name can do, right? It brings light into the darkness. It brings hope where there was no hope before. And this Aeneas was now a living, walking testimony of Jesus Christ, who is now on his throne, reigning from, reigning from above, of this one who has power over the curse. And yet, Lydda wasn't the only place where Jesus was at work. Look at, look at our next two verses. Look at verses 36 and 37. Now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. We have now traveled 12 miles to the, to the west of Lydda, to the city of Joppa, a, a port which was situated on the Mediterranean Sea. And it is in Joppa that we come across this woman named Tabitha, uh, also Dorcas. Uh, both those words mean gazelle. We'll, we'll go with Tabitha. How about that? 
And, and Luke, she, she tells us that, or Luke tells us that she was a believer and that she had devoted herself to good works. Ba- basically, that she was looking out for the poor, right? Because of the love that Christ had for her, she now spread that love to those who were in her community. And yet, what does Luke also tell us? That this woman grew ill. And that she died. And we know that she was dead because her, her family was preparing her body for the grave. But, but, but again, we must, we must ask the question, why? Why did this happen? Why did death strike this woman? This one who had been so kind, so generous to others. Why did she need to feel the sting of death's blade? The same reason that Aeneas was paralyzed. Because of the sin that has entered our world, bringing corruption to all creation. And thus death has has become the enemy of life. And its power seems to be unbeatable, even for those who are filled with the love of Christ. And yet the family and friends of Tabitha, they were not ready to give up. They were not ready to put her body in the tomb, at least not yet. For what do we read? That they laid her body in the upper room. And that's because they they heard word that Peter was nearby, that he was in the town of Lydda. Look Look at verses 38 and 39. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. So here we see these men wasting no time as they set out to find Peter, to beg him to come to Joppa right away. They they knew that time was of the essence and that they would soon have to lay this woman to rest. And so we see this sense of urgency on their part. And Peter understood this. That's why he he did not delay to go with them. Rather, he, he went as quickly as possible. And yet, what did Peter find when he arrived? Widows weeping and, and showing to him all the, all the generous gifts that Tabitha had given to them. Tunics and, and garments that this Tabitha had crafted with her own hands for the purpose of giving to the poor. It's as if these widows were, were trying to prove a point to Peter, right? That, that Tabitha was just too good and too kind for her to be taken so soon in life. Can you please do something? Can you please bring her back to us? She is worthy of life. Let's, let's compare this story to another. 
to a time when a man named Jairus sought Jesus' help when his daughter was dying. Look at, look at Luke chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 49 through 56. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. And so here we, we see a, a very similar situation, and yet there, there is a significant difference as well, a difference in the players who are involved. I mean, notice what the messengers said when they, when they knew that the girl was already dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. In other words, they, they did not believe that Jesus had the power to do anything about it. And then notice again the, the mocking and the, the disbelief coming from the mourners at Jairus' house. Jesus told them that the girl was not dead but asleep, and, and yet in their lack of faith, they, they laughed. But what we see here in the book of Acts in this, in this town of Joppa is the exact opposite, is it not? I mean, these people had faith. They believed I mean, for one, it, wasn't, it, it was after that Tabitha died that they had sent for Peter, right? And so they believed that Jesus had the power to do this. And for two, the, the mourners, they, they didn't have this mocking attitude when Peter arrived. Rather, they, they were pleading with him, bring this woman back to life. So, so why is there this, there this difference? Why with the one do we have disbelief and mocking, and yet with the other we have faith and hope? I think part of it has to do with that, was that these people already had Jesus. They were believers. They already knew the King of kings and Lord of lords, and so they knew the type of authority that Jesus had. And Peter knew this as well, for he was in that room all those years ago. He, he was in Jairus' house when Jesus has, had raised that girl to life. And now Peter would seek his master's help once more. Look at, look at verses 40 and 41. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. 
Now, what was the, the first thing that Peter did when he, when he entered that room? He got down on his hands and knees and he prayed. And that's because he knew that in his own strength, he could do nothing for this woman. Peter can't raise the dead. Only Jesus can. And yet Jesus assured Peter that she would be raised. And thus we see the command, Tabitha, arise. Tabitha, arise. Now, now, now the Greek word that is used here is anastathy. It means to raise up or to arise, just like the English says. And yet we should, we should make note that this is the same exact word that Peter used when he had healed Aeneas. Anastathy. Arise. You see, Luke is he's, he's drawing a connection here between these two events. He, he is showing a, 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 a link between the, the healing power of Jesus and his power to raise the dead. You see, just as with Aeneas, Peter was commanding this woman to do the impossible, right? To do something that cannot be done by any earthly power. To come back from the dead. I mean, think about that. Peter spoke to a dead woman and commanded her to rise. Have you ever tried that? It doesn't seem logical, right? You see, this, this power to heal and this power to raise the dead it's the same power. Both are a reversal of the curse that we are under. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, what about modern medicine, right? Aren't we able to bring back to life those who have died, say, of a heart attack? Well, yes and no. For, for what you're talking about there is a resuscitation, right? not a resurrection. Sure, sure, a person's heart may have stopped for a minute, but that doesn't really mean that that person was dead. And yet what we see here with Tabitha is a woman who had been dead for at least a day, if not longer. For it was a day's journey from Joppa to, to Lydda. And, and these messengers would have not only have had to travel to Lydda, but but they would have then had to have convinced Peter to journey back with them. And so much time would have passed. Bottom line, Peter, he wasn't trying to resuscitate this woman. He was trying to resurrect her. And yet when Peter said that word, when he said, Anastathy, arise, what did Tabitha do? She opened her eyes. And she sat up. She opened her eyes and she sat up. And that's because the resurrection power of Jesus Christ has no limits. 
There is no fatal injury that he cannot overcome. There is no amount of time that a, that a person could be dead that, that cannot be reversed. For he is the resurrection and the life. And by a single command, by a single word, Anastasi, he can defeat death itself. And yet this, this resurrection story, it, it could not be contained to such a tiny room now, right? Look at, look at our last few verses. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon a Tanner. In his joy, Peter calls all the people back into this room where he presents this woman, presents this Tabitha to all the saints, to all the widows, all the people who had been weeping over her. He presents this Tabitha to them alive and well. And so this, this joy spread to the widows, right? For this one who had been taken away from them, this one who had cared for them so greatly, had now returned. Tabitha was alive. She had risen from the dead by the power of Jesus' name. I can only imagine the emotion that was felt that day, how overjoyed these people must have been. And yet this joy, it carried even further, did it not? It left that household. For throughout the whole city, this resurrection became known. Luke tells us that many in Joppa turned to the Lord and believed. And that's because just as, as Ananias was a walking testimony to the healing power of Jesus, Tabitha now became a living testimony to the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. And so the message spread. The name of Jesus was glorified. And many, many lost souls were one on that day. Now, now when we look at these two stories, the stories of Aeneas and Tabitha, they, they seem almost too good to be true, do they not? I mean, we don't see such things happening today. And sure, I talked about modern medicine, right? The advances that we've seen. And there's advances in paralysis. But, but we don't see instantaneous, complete healings like what happened to Aeneas. And, and yes, we can resuscitate people. We can perform CPR, use defibrillators. But we have no means of doing what, what was done to Tabitha, right? To bring back those who are truly dead. No. And so what we read in these stories, it, it almost seems outlandish, right? Seems fantastic. And yet these things point to a reality concerning the kingdom of God. A, a reality that, that we as Christians don't think about regularly enough that through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, he has reversed the curse for us. 
through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, he has reversed the curse for us. You see, it was through Aeneas, it was through Tabitha that, that we get a glimpse, a, a foreshadow, if you will, of the true hope that we have in Christ. That one day all of our maladies will be done away with. That these decaying bodies that have been corrupted by sin will be made perfect in the new heavens and the new earth. That there will be no more pain. That there will be no more death. This is what the Apostle Paul said in, in the book of Romans. Look at, look at chapter 8, verses 22 and 23. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of of our bodies. And so we groan inwardly for the redemption of our bodies. We, we, we are awaiting for all of our wounds, for, for all of our hurts, for all of our sickness and diseases to be, to be wiped away. We are awaiting the reversal of the curse. Now, you may be asking yourself, but Pastor, what, what does this look like? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Paul, he spells this out clearly for us in his letter to the Corinthians. Look at, look at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 through 49. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? See, someone will ask. Right? What kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown is in, it is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. 
Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, so also we, all, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Now, I don't want to get into all the details of this passage, for that would be a whole other sermon in itself. But the, but the gist of what Paul is saying here is that just as Jesus is in his resurrected body, so too will we one day be. On that glorious day of Jesus Christ's return, we will be made new. We will be made whole. And in fact, we will be more human on that day than we have ever been. And that's because it will be Jesus who will speak this word. Anastasi. Arise. And that is exactly what will occur. We will arise from the dead and take on these new bodies. Bodies that will not see decay. Bodies that will not see death. For death will have been defeated, no, long, no longer holding any power over us. And all the loss that we have felt in this life, whether loss within ourselves or loss from the ones that we have loved, it will all be done away with. And it will be replaced with tremendous joy. For on that day, on the day of the resurrection, on the day when Christ returns, we will arise and we will experience the full blessings of his finished kingdom. And that is good news. And it is all possible because Jesus has that kind of authority. He can bring to us the true healing that we need. A healing that overcomes the curse and restores us anew. And this is a promise for all who believe, for all who turn to Jesus and have faith in that resurrection power. Repent, therefore, trust in this Jesus, and one day you too will hear him say, Anastasi, arise. Let us pray. Father, we come to you this, this day with the hope of that future joy, that future joy that can only come through your Son. For we know that we are a broken people and that the restoration that we need can only come through Jesus. And so we ask you to, to give us the faith that is required to believe this truth. Fill us with your, your Holy Spirit as we groan inwardly for that day, for the redemption of our bodies, for that day when Jesus will say that word, when he will call to each and every one of us, Anastasi, arise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.